Is it too loud? <laughs> it's okay. Talking about the chart, the God chart, which I hope you all have by now, because I didn't make any more, assuming, assuming that you could hold on to them for, over, for, for a few days. Anyway, I want to go over it again, quickly, that, uh, because that's the part that's missing from the previous lecture, and particularly now that it turns out nobody's got it. Uh, there may be some time when you're writing your paper or something, you would like to listen to the podcast to remember what happened. At least that's one of the justifications for doing it at all. So let's just do the gods one more time. Uh, so starting at the bottom of the chart, we, we were at the, we did the gods, how, we did gods last last time, didn't we? I, I, does anybody remember? Okay, so starting at the bottom, we, I won't go, I'm gonna go real fast. There are these uh, forces that everybody uh, is under and which are sort of very basic, the earth and the heavens and time. And then that, that's not anything we can say anything interesting about, I think. And it's not even anything that the people in the culture have anything interesting to say about. It's just some very basic structure that shows up in all sorts of myths. The second one is a cross-cultural kind of uh, structure, too. But it's got its own, each culture makes its own interpretation of, for instance, nature, death, need for shelter, the, the seasons and the, and, and the fact that you need to eat, all of that uh, is in the gods of uh, Poseidon for nature, Hades for death in the underworld, Hestia for the hearth and shelter, and Demeter for the seasons and the harvest. Then one of the children of Kronos, which is the, the way basic time god, who never shows up and talks to people, by the way. These basic gods that we've just been talking about, uh, Gia, Uranus, that is earth and heaven, Kronos time, and the four I just mentioned to are the children of Kronos, they are such import, impersonal kinds of cultural or personal kind of forces or general, such general cultural forces that they aren't personified in people. They, they've got, there are people there, but they don't show up and, and, and talk to human beings and stand on human, next to human beings when they do things like Athena does when Telemachus does his uh, coming from a child world to a man's world or as Aphrodite does when Helen leaves the domestic world for the erotic world, the, the, these other basic general forces, even though they are represented by people, aren't interacting directly with people. But then come the ones that we're really interested in, and that is Cronus gives birth to Zeus, and Zeus, I'll come back to this later, if you ask yourself, well, what's Zeus's job? His only job description really is protector of strangers, which is pretty weird. And I won't, I have a lot to say about that, but I'd rather get there by talking about all the other gods first. So let's go. There are all these gods that represent something like, well, three different things that I haven't distinguished very well, as somebody in office hours was convincing me of. They, you could say that the gods like Aphrodite, who is the erotic love god, goddess, uh, the sort of golden Aphrodite, the, their Marilyn Monroe. And when you, uh, you could say that she represents the mood, 
that, that when she shines on you, anybody, they're in the mood for sex or love or something in the, somewhere in that dimension. And uh, then, but that's, there are also people who are just generally in that mood and particularly sensitive to that mood. And Helen is like that. I mean, she's, she doesn't just happen to be in this mood when Paris goes by, presumably, but she's a kind of person who is very sensitive and open to the attraction of the, the opposite sex and of all the beautiful romantic, well, romantic is later, but beautiful ornaments and, and situations and uh, uh, shared experiences that, that goes with that. So there's the mood, the goddess shines, and anybody's in it. There are people who have a tendency to be in that mood. So that they're, they, that, I mean, Athena is the only goddess in the, and who's with Odysseus, and she's always around, or almost always, accompanying Odysseus. I presume Ares, the war god, is the only god that Achilles ever interacts with, except when Athena pulls him by the ponytail to stop him from killing Agamemnon at the beginning of the Iliad. And so then there are, so there are these people sort of associated with a particular god because they have a tendency to get in a particular mood. And then there's something else which is, let me see how to put it, uh, well it's when, that's when I talk about worlds. I mean, there's the world of Aphrodite, which is all that goes into having a kind of life in which the, the erotic is the main thing. And uh, then there's another, and let me say more about that for a minute, because I skipped it last time, and now I regret it. There are certain general characteristics of worlds. So when you're, so when you're thinking of, of the, the goddess like Aphrodite, you're thinking of a certain mood, you're thinking of a certain kind of person that's in that mood a lot of the time, and you're thinking about, or that she represents, a certain world. And what is a world? Well, first let's just look at the sort of things that we call worlds, and then we'll try to see what their common features are. There's the business world, and the, uh, what else? The theater world, the academic world, uh, and so forth. And then there are these bigger things like the, the ancient world and the modern world. But the, the kind of level we want to talk on is where there's a plurality of worlds, and you use the term all the time, you just don't ask yourself, well, what is it to be in the, what, in the business world or the theater world or whatever? Uh, it's not some spatial kind of in. Being in the theater is, a, is ambiguous. If you're just standing around in the theater, you're not in the theater world. Being in the theater... It means, if it's a world story, being involved in theater things. And if you're in the business world, then your main energy and so forth is involved in business. And if you're in the academic world, then, like us, then your main energy is focused in the academic world. So, but what do these worlds have in common that we talk about all the time? Well, there's at least two features that Heidegger fi finds in them. There's always equipment for doing whatever it is that you do in that world. So you can have props and costumes and theaters and uh, so forth. Uh, and in, in you can have whatever business needs, computers and uh, cubicles and uh, CEOs and so forth. Uh, 
And you certainly know what kind of equipment you've got. I see it all over the place. Computers. I would have thought digital recorders. That just shows how surprising things can be. But there's plenty of other things, books and pens and pencils. And that's always in a world, that it has its own kind of equipment. Take, take the Aphrodite world. Apparently she has the beautiful dresses and, and Helen too, her long-robed Helen that we hear about. And that there's, uh, I don't know what sort of, the, the, the gifts that you give people when, when, when you're in that world and so forth. I, I mean, they don't have Valentines, but I'm sure they have some equivalent thereof. And, uh, and in each of these worlds then there's equipment. And of course, uh, the, Aero, the Ares uh, world of war and aggression and belligerence has got its swords and spears and helmets and, and horses and chariots and generals and, and uh, foot soldiers and so forth. So, okay, so now you can, so that I will now distinguish three levels or, or three, I don't know, aspects, let's call it, of what it is that, that, that a god like uh, Aphrodite, say, is in charge of. A mood, the life of a person who has a tendency to be in that mood most of the time, uh, and the world that goes with being in that mood. Meaning, oh, I forgot, I knew there was another, besides equipment, put this back in the world, roles. There's all, I, I named them, but I didn't call them roles. They're generals and foot soldiers, I said. And I said they're CEOs and the people in the cubicles and so forth. And here there are professors and teaching assistants and students and deans and so forth. It's part of a world that there are these various uh, jobs. Okay. Anybody want to say anything about that? I think I owe you that a lot from way back that I had distinguished those three enough. Uh, okay, well, now that I have... Yeah. Could you broaden the idea of roles to say that a world is what different time zone of possibilities that open up to me? Yes, of course. Good. Good point. That's very important. Right. A world is a kind of, in Heidegger jargon, it doesn't help much, a disclosive space. It is, uh, it is an opening in which things can show up for you and offer you possibilities for action. In fact, that's too enlightenment as if it was up to you to make a choice, draw you into certain possibilities of action. When the war world shows up, they all march off to war full of energy and, and aggression and so forth. When Aphrodite shows up, they all rush off to bed full of energy too. And in, and in every one of the worlds, it opens up a lot of possibilities and, and draws you in. And each world has its own bunch of possibilities. I mean, you don't find mixing of Aries and Aphrodite, at least not in uh, their culture or our culture. There could be a culture where aggression and sex were very much tied up, and they had different gods and so forth, but they certainly don't seem to be interrelated in this uh, story. I, I think I mentioned this. What does get interrelated between... Uh, well, it's interesting. Hmm. There's this crazy thing in the middle of the book, which I always sort of think of as a kind of sitcom, where Aphrodite goes to bed with Ares while Hephaestus is away. That's sort of interesting in, this, in what we're talking about, uh, in terms of uh, what, what possibilities show up, to, to what, what it makes sense to do. I didn't put it that way, but that's another phrase. To, what it makes sense to do depends on what world you're in. 
But in that crazy story, there are two things that are interesting. One, why is Aphrodite with uh, 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 Hephaestus, who is sort of uh, portrayed usually as he's a cripple and he's sort of ugly and uh, he's just a brilliant craftsman who makes very beautiful things, but it's a funny couple, golden Aphrodite and, and uh, ugly Hephaestus. Well, uh, the answer seems to be, at least as far as I can tell, there is an overlap between the worlds, which I was talking about without naming. That there, you, the, the, the erotic world is tied up with beautiful things, beautiful earrings, beautiful clothes, beautiful gifts, and people who are at least trying to look their most beautiful, and so forth. So uh, there is something between the, the artifice of Hephaestus and the craftsman and um, uh, Aphrodite. And so they are there together. But they're not a terribly happy couple. And as soon as Hephaestus goes away, Aphrodite goes to bed with Ares. And that's not surprising either that she chose Ares because he's the aggressive uh, sort of, I suppose, somewhat brutal side and sort of raving crazy. He's described as crazy Aphrodite. He's sort of uh, uh, out of his mind in an aggressive way, and she's sort of a, uh, the goddess of people out of their mind in a passionate, erotic way, and so naturally they get together. But as you know, if you read, how many have read, you got that far already, haven't you? I don't want to give away the sitcom plot. Uh, but uh, so, so, so Hephaestus makes this net, and he catches them, uh, and then naked in his bed, and then all the gods come around and watch and laugh. And that, I, I say that just because I want to point out different at, relations you can have to that. Uh, and it will get me to the next people I want to talk about. So we've talked about Athena. We've talked about Hephaestus. Let's talk about Apollo. Because his, his reaction to the, to the sex scene in the, in the middle of the book is, is so typical of Apollo, I think. Remember, he's the far shooting Lord of distance, these are phrases that apply to him. And his fields are prophecy, medicine, and music. All of that has in common detachment. He's, and he's going to turn into the god of, of sort of theory and rationality when you get to Aeschylus. He's always wanting to have uh, get the arguments straight and show that the, the, the reason is on his side and that what he sees is some kind of universal truth, because he's never got passionately involved. That's why he's the god of distance. But when, when, well, when, when Ares and uh, Aphrodite are in bed together there, and all the gods are laughing, the, there's only two gods that aren't laughing, but um, one is Apollo, who is just, I think, too detached, and he turns to the god next to him, and, and that's, um, we'll get back to him next time, Hermes and says, uh, what, what, would, would, you, would you be willing to be so humiliated to go to bed with uh, Aphro golden Aphrodite? And uh, Hermes says, in effect, of course. And, but Apollo, it would be, if it would be totally wrong if it was the other way around, if Hermes said to Apollo, from a, as if he was the spectator, would you be willing to go, uh, go to bed with Aphrodite under those conditions? Well, Apollo would be appalled, I think. <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't think of it. Uh, so, but, but we'll see that Hermes is a, is a kind of 
well, among other things, a, a very important kind of swindler, operator, thief, uh, and so he's ready to take anything he can lay his hands on and uh, appropriate it, so to speak. So, and he's, he regrets he's not the one. But, okay, so now we've got done Apollo. We, we won't do Athena yet, and Ares, there's nothing more to say except that he's the ferocious, crazy, sort of out-of-control, berserk war, war god, uh, and Hephaestus, the crass person. The other ones are people that uh, Artemis doesn't make any big show in this. She's the hunter, the, the, the virgin the, with a bow, bow and arrow. I, mean, I, I don't know what was life was like then, but I think she would now be the goddess of, uh, of horse people. My daughter, for instance, was definitely an Artemis horse person. And, uh, they, and uh, now she uh, still loves animals and is now an environmentalist. I'm sure Artemis would be the goddess of the environmentalists at this point. Uh, the, the, the green goddess. I don't know what she looks like. But, um, and Persephone, she's sort of running things in, in Hades, but I don't know anything about her. And I mentioned Dionysus is in here too, but it's funny, he never gets mentioned, as far as I remember, at all by Homer. Homer just doesn't, doesn't care about Dionysus. Yeah. Now, now we need our question person. Here, either you, why do you, you this is gonna, we're gonna test this and see if this theory works. Hi. I was just mentioning that Dionysus like, was um, a newer god uh, after Homer's time. He was sometimes believed to be an imported god from, um, from foreign countries. So good. Thanks. Well, that works, too. Thank you. Just keep the microphone. Uh, so don't take it home with you, but I mean, uh, hold on to it. It makes you louder. It, it helps. Do you hear me? Okay, then I'll keep it. There must be a better way, given all this high tech. <laughs> but for the day, we'll have to do. Okay, so that's interesting. Well, good, I printed Dionysus in a funny font because I suspected something. And so, so he isn't even around yet at Homer's time. You know anything about Persephone? No, nobody knows. You know something about Persephone? I see. Okay. That's, I can see why she doesn't interest Homer very much, because those aren't really worlds. There's no sort of equipment, really, for being summer or winter. If there is, there's certainly no roles. For being, and, and it doesn't define a kind of life, a tendency to be summer or winter. So it's not a, she's not a good person. See, all these other people, there are roles for doing their kind of thing and equipment for doing their kind of thing run through it. Aries, the war person, the crafts person, the theory person, the hunting kind of person, she's sort of marginal and that's how she gets treated. And the erotic person, those are really worlds. Okay, some question, I saw a hand over there. Where, where? I swear I saw somebody. I know I did, I'm not hallucinating. Did I answer the question? Well, okay, whatever. So let's go on. Uh, so let me, I'm going to now sort of run through what I've written here and see if it corresponds to roughly to what I said. So far, yes. 
And then there are these very peculiar ones that, I, for various reasons, I don't know what to do with. By the way, I should say, I mean, I can't make up a story that fits everything in, in the Odyssey and in the Iliad, that gods do all kinds of weird things, particularly in the Iliad, where Apollo, for instance, makes so what, who, somebody's horse talk to him and tell him not to go into the battle. That just doesn't fit my picture of what gods are supposed to be doing. But I'm trying to construct a, a kind of ideal polytheism, because Homer's got the best polytheism, the most worked out, the most interesting around, and we just have to sort of extrapolate it, clean it up, and I mean, there are all kinds of uh, elements in it that probably are really folk elements in it, and they aren't fully integrated in it, and there are also stuff probably that was put into it as because it, it was an, an oral tradition for a long time before it was written down, and when it was written down, things probably were written into it that weren't there all the time. But in any case, we don't care about that. I mean, that, that's a very interesting question, no doubt, for people reading the Iliad and the Odyssey in a classics course. We want to get sort of what the basic insight of this kind of polytheism is, what a life inside this kind of polytheism is. So there are people, this was all to say, there are people I don't know what to do, how to deal with them. Hera, I think Hera would be great as, a, as the goddess of domesticity, which she seems to be. Married to Zeus seems to be her main thing and being jealous of his affairs seems to be her main jobs. But uh, we, don't, we don't really get a full picture uh, in, in her of what a domestic god just would look like. She, she would plan the big uh, banquets on Olympus and she would uh, be, uh, take care of, of the family and so forth. But that, that doesn't seem to be a job for anybody on Olympus and so we don't care about Hera. There's another person in there, who, Hebe, who I don't put on the chart, who serves drinks and is in general and uh, sort of uh, takes care of cocktail parties and stuff on Olympus, but uh, it just doesn't get worked out. Um, and Poseidon is a very special problem because he's not a world. He's, an, he's the god of the anti-world, so to speak. Why isn't it a world? Because he's the god of nature. And, the, and there aren't roles and there aren't equipment to, to be nature. And uh, he's the overpowering force of particularly the ocean, which is the most overpowering force the Greeks knew and still is. Did, did, did I mention my movie last time? When I, did I talk about Poseidon last time? I've gotten, I've gotten dependent on my own podcast to remember what I've said. Uh, so anyway, what, how many, did I ask how many have seen Castaway? I probably didn't. Have you, how many have seen Castaway? Good, good. If I had time, I'd show it in the course just to show what the... I, I, when I saw that movie, I felt for the first time, now I know what it was like to be Odysseus on a raft at the, in the face of this overwhelming force of the ocean. It's brilliant for that. And so he is that. And Odysseus suffers in, 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 from him. And, but uh, he doesn't have the normal features of, of world-defining gods. He really looks like he belongs down in that lower level where I put him. Uh, and he's, and, and it's, it's important. Yeah, um, Homer, the, Homer doesn't have this all figured out in his head, I don't think. But the sense of the people, sort of certain stories obviously stick and certain ones don't. And like certain metaphors, like uptight or something. You, of all the funny things that people say, 
that one takes off, or laid back and so forth. So the, 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 the kind of wisdom of the people sort out all the stuff about gods, and some of it comes around. I, Poseidon isn't one of those gods of possible Greek worlds on the chart. He is the brother of Zeus. He's one, and he's, he's not a father of all those human world gods. He's, and, that's, and they have to treat him. He's on Olympus with the Pantheon. The Pantheon is the name for all the gods that are on Olympus, and he's on Olympus, unlike Demeter and Hestia and Hades. But he's certainly in an ambiguous position because he's the brother of Zeus and he doesn't have to do what Zeus says and every once in a while they, when he gets upset at people he goes around and beats them up when, 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 uh, because the Cyclops is, a, is a, a child of his he gets very annoyed at Odysseus who then that's where you get all this heavy beating up from the water this, when, you, when he comes crashing down on him and the other gods can't do anything about it because it's as if it was the force of nature against all the other forces which are culture. I mean, all the other forces are roles and worlds that you can only have in a culture. And then there is Poseidon who's outside of the culture and the Cyclops who's pretty much outside of the culture too. We'll come back to the Cyclops later in another connection. So, so much for the God story, I believe. Uh, yeah. I just wrote down here, but I've sort of said it. He, Cyclops is a sort of a minimal uh, fourth generation god. Uh, not even a god, never mind. He's, why do I have him on my chart at all? I, yeah, I think we should cross out the Cyclops. I, I don't, because all these others are gods, but I don't, is he a god? I don't think so. A demigod or something. That's another thing, by the way, I don't know how to cope with. And if anybody does... I mean, here. Don't know how to cope with, but if anybody does, they should they should uh, think about it, tell me about it, write a paper about it. The demigods they are they very peculiar, like Calypso and Circes, and uh, probably Poseidon too. They're half. I mean, they they don't seem to be worlds, but they aren't. But they seem to be immortal. They're not part of the pantheon. That's why I don't like Cyclops up there because he's something. I don't know where to put him but down lower, because everybody up at the top is in the pantheon, is a cultural uh, archetype, or whatever the right word is, paradigm. I don't like archetypes. The reason I don't, archetypes are thought of as, by Jung and by Campbell and so forth, you've probably come across this, as definitely cross-cultural things. Cross-cultural heroes, cross-cultural gods, and cross-cultural stuff. Uh, and I think that's just very bad way of thinking about it. It levels all the important differences between what heroes are in different cultures, for instance. Uh, so I want to say paradigm, by which I mean that these gods aren't cross-cultural archetypes. The cross-cultural goes with sort of with the humanist view. There is some deep truth about all human beings that, that you can discover, and lo and behold, Jung and Campbell have discovered them, or some of them. Anyway, so the story goes, but I want to say the important thing is that each culture's got a different take on it isn't a lot of them don't even have heroes and and some of them have very different kinds of heroes and what what the gods are aren't cross cultural that's the third generation you know there is the the Gaia generation and then there is the uh Hades and company generation and then there is the 
And the second, what, what, what do I call it, the second or third generation? The generation, anyway, with Hades, Poseidon, and so forth. Those are the cross-cultural ones. The, the cultural ones, each culture has its own paradigm. That's what I want to say. It's not an archetype. It doesn't go across. A, 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 Apollo is not the archetype of, of, of intelligence. We're the only culture with theory. Uh, Athena's not the only form. Well, Athena's so special. Only Homer has a goddess like Athena. But let's say Artemis is, a, is, a, is not the same. She's a paradigm of a certain kind of swept away love and not like any, all, any other culture, if you spell it out, I think. Okay, somebody in the back, can you say something very loud? You can't hear me. What am I going to do? What's that? Oh, okay. But good, thanks for telling me. Because you know, I sound very loud to me. I wonder why there must be speakers all around here. Uh, yeah, they're, I guess they're very near me. Okay, here we go again. Um, another test I just see I've written here is whether the, all the gods in the, in the pantheon can be a way of life. You can have a, theoret- a theory life, you can have a love life, you can have a worry about the environment and love horses life and so forth, but you can't, you can't have a uh, cyclops kind of life. Uh, that's, that's just not a, not a cultural possibility. He lives all alone. The cyclops is really, uh, you know, has no society, he has a minimal amount of equipment. from the story and uh, uh, he also what else and he's really just a part of nature the cyclops is really a volcano I mean he's sort of kind of he's related to volcanoes that's why he has one eye and then that eye gets fiery and smoky when it gets burnt and then to really show he's a volcano when when Odysseus yells I'm I'm the one who blinded you Uh, what's his name Polyphemus then Polyphemus starts throwing big rocks it could almost sink the boat. Well, because that's a volcano erupting. So there's, he's really still sort of half in the, in the Greek god world and really just a piece of nature. But anyway, that's that. I don't want to get into that. We should get into the next part. So how are the various good lives related? I mean, given that those, there are all these different possible lives, which I was just naming and won't name again, and you can list the goddess and that list the lives. Okay, if talk louder, we're going to have to throw the microphone at you. Are our what? Our... I think all the Cyclopses are probably Poseidon's children. Is that what you ask? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if it says anywhere. Do you, you have any idea? I suspect they are because they're st- because I mean, all the volcanoes are, and I think they're still pretty closely related to volcanoes. Just as Poseidon is pretty well related to storms at sea, they, you don't picture them much. Poseidon sort of running around like a person, although he does do that a little bit. He goes and has dinner with the Ethiopians every once in a while. Apparently, he likes them best. Don't ask me what's going on there. I don't think it gets explained. Okay, so let's go. I'm going to talk now about the interesting way, and Cyclopses can be brought right into this discussion, so I'll jump to that. It's probably what I wanted to do anyway. Okay, 
There's, I want to say that in, in the, one of the things about polytheism that makes it attractive is that there's appreciation of lots of different kinds of good lives. And, and this is the interesting thing, that we find sort of incredible and sort of congenial. I'll, you'll see when I get there. Uh, the, the, it does, the Homer does not want to rank the lives. and say These lives are better than those lives, like saints are better than sinners. Immature people are less. Are, mature people are better than immature people. I mean, we've got lots of ranking scales now, but he didn't have a ranking scale. He didn't want one, I don't think. So that's what it is to be poly. You're, you're having trouble hearing me? Okay, I I don't know what to do about this. I, I when I I if I hope no. Anyway, okay, just keep telling me, and now someday I'll figure out how to deal with this. I, or someday, somebody will come and tell me how to deal with it. Oh, one of the ways to deal with it is to turn up the microphone, but I won't try to do it now, but I know that inside that cabinet is the volume control. Maybe I should try it. Let's see what happens. No, then I have to take this one off. I, I give up. This one. Okay, like that. Is that better? Okay. It isn't worse, anyway. If I had that kind of microphone. But I don't have that kind. I only have three microphones. I don't need one. Yeah. What? Hold it. No, it's, I can't. That's too... Too distracting. Okay, I'm going to go. You convinced me. We're trailing this over here to see about whether we can use this microphone. I'm looking for the key. There's the key. And we don't even know whether this key opens this thing, but let's try. Aha, that's a start. Now, microphone one, microphone two, microphone three. One, two, they're all turned up full. Great. What else? That settles that. Uh, but I'm looking more. The wireless we can turn up, maybe? No, it's full. It's full. Well, there it goes. I'm glad I tried. And look at that. This has got switched to off. I bet, I bet that's what happened last time, too. <laughs> After the first 20 minutes, it, it's, there's no way to lock it on. Oh. Is there any way to put it on hold? Everything has a hold button. Everything but this one. Well, I'll put it back in my pocket. There'll be some new disaster, I fear. Okay, so I want to start by contrasting to show you what it, how radically Homer does not want to rank lives. I'm going to talk about the relation of the Phaeacians to the Cyclopses. We just talked about the... Uh, am I ready to do... Well, no, I'm not ready to talk about that. No, I want to start with uh, the life of Achilles as the Ares 
warrior one contrasted with Menelaus, who went off to fight, after all, he, they, Paris took his wife, but he's not mainly a warrior. He's very good at being the, a host at, a, at banquets where his, is where uh, Telemachus finds him. And I don't remember him doing anything very memorable in, in the uh, Trojan War, in the Iliad either. Uh, his life is kind of la dolce vita. He's, he's ease, no risks, He's nearly immortal. He's because and he not, he, because he doesn't want to make himself vulnerable. Uh, and the interesting question is, what will happen to him in sort of the final kind of judgment whether this is a good life or not? Uh, and it turns out, well, it's a great life, and and Homer approves of it. And he's told when he captures the old man of the sea and gets him to tell him what's going on about things. On page 69, you, you, you get an idea of what's the kind of life he leads and the relation this has to what happens to you after you die. So here he's about two-thirds of the way down on 69, about 600 in the margin. As to your destiny, Prince Menelaus, you shall not die. Sorry, you shall not, he does die. You shall not die in the bluegrass land of Argos. Rather, the gods intend you for Elysium, with golden Radamanthus at the world's end, where all existence is a dream of ease. That's the crucial phrase. Snowfall is never known, neither the frost of winter nor torrential rain, but only mild and lolling air from ocean bearing refreshment for the souls of men, the west wind always blowing. Uh, the gods hold you as Helen's lord, a son of Zeus. The, the important thing is that his life is a dream of ease. That's where you see him at the banquets. And when he dies, he'll go to Hades and it'll just be a continuation of that. Now, the question I'm, what I'm asking is, how does Homer rank that life relative to Achilles' life? Now, you haven't read the Iliad, but you all know that Achilles is the glorious fighter. And you don't maybe know, but it's important that his mother, who was a goddess, uh, a demigod, uh, which, is not, which is probably important, but I don't understand how, so I won't try to explain it. Anyway, the important thing about Achilles is that he's given the choice between a short and glorious life and a long, comfortable life like Menelaus. And he chooses a short and glorious life, a different way of life. And he wants to do great deeds and have people sing of him at wonderful banquets. That's what, and uh, be by far the fastest runner and the most enduring fighter on the field at, at Troy. And what happens, so, and it looks like, you want to say, well, the whole Iliad's about him, and Menelaus only has a bit part in the, in the Iliad, and not even a very big part in the Odyssey. It must be that Homer and the Greeks that he represents choose the short, glorious life, which you get, when you get sung about as a hero, over the laid-back life of somebody like Menelaus. Um, but Homeric polytheism does a very strange move on Achilles, which I think is just fascinating. That is, when 
how is he going to deal with that? Is he going to show you Achilles being a better life? Remember what happens when they go to Hades? With the, they go and uh, Odysseus sees Achilles and they have uh, a, 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 an interesting con- conversation. Uh, where are we now? On 200. So, 200, here we are. Uh, on about very near the bottom, when he sees the spirit of Achilles in the middle of, he sees the spirit of Achilles at the middle of the page. Then in the next chunk, he, uh, Odysseus makes a speech to Achilles. Son of Laertes, that's his father, Achilles' father, and the gods of old, that must be because his mother is a demigod, Odysseus, what? Who's talking? Sorry about this. Wait a minute. Sorry, sorry. Uh, it's Achilles talking. Just a second. Yes, I, I, I'm completely confused. Son of Laertes, I should have known better. Laertes is, is uh, Odysseus' father. And I don't know the gods of old. I have no idea what he's doing in there, or they're doing in there. But so when, he, when Achilles sees Odysseus, he calls out to him. You see where we are now. Son of Laertes and the gods of old, Odysseus, master mariner and soldier, old knife, what next? What greater feat remains for you to put your mind on after this? How did you find your way down to the dark where these dim-witted dead are camped forever? The, the, the after images of used up men. Now that's the first question we have to deal with. It turns out, remember what we read, when, what the old man of the sea described. Now I've lost the old man of the sea. Where are we? Uh, 69. Okay. What is Hades like? You get very confused. Here Hades is a dream of ease. Everybody would love to go there. It's sort of the, it's like going to Hawaii. It's, the weather's always terrific. And, uh, then, uh, you hear here, that it's a terrible place where the dim-witted dead and and the images of used-up men. What's going on there? Well, I guess, my story would be, Homer thinks that the afterlife is is the perpetuation of what you had in this life. In that sense, uh, Menelaus's life stays the same. But, it can't perpetuate any kind of life where there's power and risk because there's, they're all dead already. So what I'm trying to say is, from the point of view of Menelaus, the afterlife is just fine. And when he's dead, he's going to be just as happy as he is now or even happier because he's even going to be more comfortable. But from Achilles' point of view, the afterlife is a disaster because you can't have the kind of energy risk-taking uh, once you're already dead. That's why these people are dim-witted dead, used-up men. Now, the question is, does this fact that, that Menelaus can go on and have a great life uh, even after he's dead show that it's a better kind of life to live comfortably like Menelaus than to have a life in which you lead a short and glorious, energetic, risky life and, die, and know you're going to have to die young. Well, <clears throat> it looks like 
there's a problem, and it comes to a head at the top of 201. Uh, Odysseus answers Achilles, but was there ever a man more blessed by fortune than you, Achilles? This looks like this is the best possible life, you see. Can there ever be? We ranked you with immortals in your lifetime. We Argives did. And here your power is royal among the dead men's shades. Think then, Achilles, you need not be so pained by death. Okay, so this must, you must be okay, Achilles. You, lead, you led what looks like the best possible life. So you must be happy with that. What difference does it make now that you aren't able to you know, risk your life anymore? And the answer is, let me hear no smooth talk of death from you, Odysseus, light of counsels. Better, I say, to break sod as a farmhand for some poor countryman on iron rations and lord it over the exhausted dead. The used up men, remember, they, these people with no energy. Remember, they even have to drink somebody else's blood, a cow's blood, or I forget where they get the blood, to have enough energy even to have, a, have this conversation. So, uh, let's see. Uh, Okay, then he says, well, let's stop with that. It looks like, he says, You're, you, my life is not a good life. You, I, I've been deluded because there's nothing worse than death. And I've risked my life and shortened my life. And I, it would have been better to be living as long as possible. And he's very unhappy about it. So now it looks like Homer has taken what looked like the best possible life and shown that it's got these tremendous limitations that uh, being alive is a very good thing, and if you're going to be risking your life and dying young, that's a, not a very attractive life. So it, 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 you'll see, there's this, but the, now comes a, a really surprising thing. Sometimes Homer is so surprising and subtle. What happens next? He switches right from complaining, Achilles, to saying, tell me what news of the prince, my son. Did he come after me to make a name in battle? Or could it be he did not? Do you know if rank and honor still belong to Peleus in the town of the Myrmidons? That's his island, his, his, what he's king of. Or now maybe Hellas and Pythias spurn him, seeing old age fetters him and so forth. Uh, okay, now, what ha what, and so now it looks like Achilles, even though he sees that his life, how do I put it here? I like what I said. Uh, just a second. Uh, if you make your life a ferocious warrior life, then of course you're going to get old and lose your physical strength and die, lose all your force altogether. Achilles regrets that he chose a short and glorious life. Um, and that's amazing. And Odysseus is shocked. And it looks like Homer has gone so far as to go from overvaluating the, the life of Achilles to now under-evaluating the life of Achilles. He doesn't seem to be able to get it right, but, or to get any middle view. Um, but even though he thinks that, 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 even though it looks like, this is what I wrote down, the life of a superhero is really not the life of the best, not the best life, but an inferior, deluded life, that's what I'm trying to say. Then, what's the reversal? Well, the reversal is, he's, he believes, however, that he, what he wants his son to be is just like him. A soldier doing great deeds in battle. And he's asking about that. 
and he hears that his son was great, that nobody could do better, this is the bottom of 202, than his son Neoptolemus, who ran out of the Trojan horse bravely before it, while everybody else was scared. And when he, we had pierced and sacked Prime's tall city, I'm at the bottom of 202, he loaded his plunder and embarked with no scar on him, not a spear grazed him, and so forth. Ares in his mad fits, notice he's cra Ares is crazy, as I said, Ares in his mad fits knows no favorites. Uh, and now comes the punchline. Achilles has discovered that his son is like him, uh, and he regrets it looked like being a, a soldier who is likely to die young or at least get old and not be able to go running around waving his spear anymore. But that isn't what happened. What happens is, but I said no more, for off he had gone, for he had gone off striding the field of Aspidel, the ghost of our great runner Achilles, glorying in what I told him of his son. So finally the glory of the, of, of the heroic life looks so good that Achilles is even able to, uh, you know, now he's not going to say my son is being deluded. It would be better if he were, a, a, what did he say, a farmhand. That, that, that he's going around risking his life as a soldier. He doesn't say that at all. He says, isn't that wonderful? What's the moral of all this flipping back and forth? Well, I think the moral of it is, is that Homer doesn't rank lives. You can't ask who's got a better life, Menelaus or Achilles. To do that, he has to sort of cut down the life of Achilles first to, so that you don't think he's just a natural superhero who could be as good as that because there is this problem of dying and, he, and Achilles is not, and, and the, the soldier is going to die young. See, so he's, he, what, what I want to say is Homer sees the trade-offs, the pros and cons of all these lives. Menelaus has a soft life. He has no glory, but he's not going to miss anything when he dies. Achilles has a soldier life. All he cares about is glory and fighting and risking, and he's going to miss all that when he dies. But which life do you choose? Well, they're, they're equal. Uh, that, that's the important thing. He's not, but I've got, a, I've got a bigger surprise. If you doubt that, I hope you do, that he thinks that all these lives are equal. I mean, there's a point where e e e Homer goes sort of off the chart in equality. You'll see that in a minute. Um, where are we? So different lives, I wrote down here, are incommensurate. You can't compare them. There's no common standard. There's something good and something wrong with every life. Another interesting place that happens is on 87, where Calypso decides to tries to compare life with her. Remember, she's the perfect uh, sort of erotic partner. I don't know how to describe her, sort of geisha kind of person or something, because she's good at everything. She sings, she's good at conversation, I'm sure she's a good cook, she's very good in bed, and everything, I mean, everything and, and the whole thing is that Odysseus, uh, how could anybody want to leave? And Odysseus is sitting there crying because he wants to go home. And the interesting thing is, he's been there a year with her. He wasn't in any hurry to go home. She was so attractive. It was only when the men said, look, we're supposed to be on our way home, Odysseus, don't you remember? That he, that he got out of this mood of being totally seduced by her and started wishing he was at home with Penelope. Moods do that. They, they wear off. Remember Helen's mood of always being with Paris happily 
and uh, it wears off, and she regrets that she's not home with Menelaus. So uh, here, so he's now crying, sitting there every day, crying, wishing he could go home, and she's feeling bad about that. She says, on, on eighty-seven. Son of Laertes, versatile Odysseus, after these years with me, you st- years, I wonder how long, I said a year. Judge, what? You were talking about uh, No, I'm talking about Calypso. Did I say Circe if I did? And he's staying with Calypso here. And I, and he's, years with her and then one year with the other one. Okay, how long with, uh, with Calypso? Many years. Many years, apparently. Yeah, so there he is so seduced by this super sexy, super intellectual and everything woman, he doesn't even think of leaving. He forgets home and everything for a while. Then he got bored. And, and that mood wore off. And homesick mood took over. So there he is crying on 87. Uh, and, but she says, um, after these years with me, you still desire your old home? Even so, I wish you well. If you could see all before you go, all the adversity you face at sea, you'd stay here and guard this house and be immortal, though you wanted, though you wanted her forever. Who? What? Stay here and guard this house and be immortal, though you wanted. Is he talking about Penelope already? What's? Does anybody understand that line? Sometimes I'll. Okay, let's let me go on then. That bride for whom you pine. Yes, it is Penelope. Okay. Yes, he's, he's missing Penelope. Uh, that bride for whom you pine each day. Can I be less desirable than she is? Less interesting? Less beautiful? Can mortals compare with goddesses in grace and form? And to this the strategist Odysseus answered. Notice this very smart answer. My lady goddess, here is no cause for anger. My quiet Penelope, how well I know, would seem a shade before your majesty, death and old age being unknown to you while she must die. Yet it's true, each day I long for home, long for the sight of home, presumably long for her too. If any god has marked me out again for shipwreck, my tough heart can undergo it and he's going to try to get home. So what I want to say is he won't compare... Penelope to uh, uh, Calypso. They are each, for, for sort of immortal uh, per- perfection, uh, Calypso wins. That for being his wife and, and, and with his home and his son, uh, that's winning out. And uh, he, he doesn't say, in effect, that one is better than the other. He just, in effect, when one mood was on, that dominated his life. And he was pulled into that, kept in that. Now this other mood has taken over. He wants to get home. Yeah, okay, so what's one of the things, by the way, you should notice, everybody seems to think that Odysseus is always just interested in getting home. That's just wrong. And in case I don't get a chance to say it someplace else, you should notice that for years he's happy to stay with her. And he doesn't even get out of the mood of staying with her until his men sort of revolt and say, well, we're not having such a good time and we want to go home. And uh, the, the point is, I think, not just that he is so happy to be with her. I'm not, that's not the conclusion that interests me. One, with one interests me is he doesn't try to compare her to Penelope. But the other thing is, he's interested in seeing all these other ways of life. He's more interested in going where no person has gone before and just observing everything, from, and uh, even if it's very risky, like when they go to see Circe and when they go to see Polyphemus. 
his men almost get wiped out. He's always managed just cleverly not to get wiped out. But his, his more interesting to him than going home, at the, in, in the beginning anyway, is seeing other things. I can't prove it with this because he stays there for all those years instead of running around and seeing other things. But when he gets to uh, Circe, I won't try to find the pages, his men say, oh, let's not go there. We see the smoke over there. Somebody lives over there. But uh, we, we're on our way home. And Odysseus says, oh, we've got to find out what it's like over there. Who lives over there? What is, what is this person doing? And then they almost all get killed or turned into animals to be exact. And then again with the Cyclops, they say, oh, no, we've had it. You've done it again. We, you, we don't want to go see the Cyclops. We want to go home. And Odysseus says, no, we've got to see who lives in those caves. His real dominating thing is to see and experience as many worlds as possible, I think. Uh, and we'll get back to that, too. But I may forget to say it, so I'll say it now. Um, I wonder what I say of 179. I say there's something relevant to what I'm talking about. So let's see what it is. What is it? Huh. Look at that. There seems to be a contradiction. Because this is still with, with uh, Calypso, isn't it? This is Circe. I see now. That's what you're saying. Uh, well, we should notice on 179, he stays for, with her a year. That's what you said, didn't you, Beatrice? At the bottom of 179. Uh, so day by day we lingered feasting on roasts and wine until a year grew fat. And when the passing months and wheeling seasons brought the long summery days, the pause of summer, my shipmates one day summoned me and said, Captain, shake off this trance and think of home. And so then... He's, he's launched again into some new adventure. But he's, he's in no big hurry to get home. Okay, now I want to do my punchline about Homer refusing to compare ways of life to the point of mind-bogglingness. You're going to see that the two most extremely different ways of life in the book get, we're, we're in effect told they're equally okay. They're, they're good lives. So here we go. It starts with the Phaeacians. The Phaeacians are the most civilized of any of the people he meets. They're even more civilized than the people back in Argos, uh, not Argos, Ithaca, and, uh, then, and then the Menelaus banquets. They've got even better banquets. They've got the best meals, the most quality craft productions, the best harpers, the best sporting events, they are. They have the good life. They and they know it. Everybody knows it. They are closest to the Olympian gods. They say. Um, they are. Let's read it about five lines down. Uh, the, the, and now they, that is the Olympian gods, have shown themselves in glory only after great hecatombs. Those figures banqueting at our side, throned like ourselves, or some traveler met them when alone. They bore no least disguise. So anyway, so they, they are so well off that they, they dine with the gods. And the next line is amazing. We are their kin. The Cyclops rank no nearer gods than we. So he's refusing to even rank this absolutely civilized society of the, of the Phaeacians. Uh, as more or less near to God than the absolutely broody 
Cyclopses. I mean, I, I can't defend it. I think it's absolutely crazy, but I think it's something that the, the idea behind it is don't rank lives, don't rank cultures, don't rank ways of, of, of being human. Or, and, and this is the extremist refusal to rank them. You're looking worried. It is worrisome, I admit. I, I, I didn't write it. Oh, I'm ranking them well? In other words, is it the same thing not to rank? Just to attend to it because it exists. It's there. Yeah. It, it needs to be looked at, etc. Yeah. Is that the same as saying they're all of equal rank? Well, no. That wouldn't be enough to say they were of equal rank. Just that they are all to be explored with curiosity. That would be the, the Odysseus thing. But I think the Homer thing, you could say something more. There seems to be a kind of implicit anyway, refusal to rank them. I mean, the, the important thing isn't just that, that Homer looks with equal eye on all these lives. He, there is no place where he tells you that one life is better than another. But it's a kind of negative argument. But, I mean, I think it's, it's important. It's, I mean, I can say one thing, then Beatrice. I mean, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking this kind of polytheistic openness to all ways of life is what makes this a comedy and not a tragedy. As soon as you think that you've got to rank them, then you have to, then you get fights between the people who are for this kind of life over against that kind of life. In the Aeschylus is a tragedy. Aeschylus is a fight, the, the, the Oresteia, about which is the better way of life. And another thing, I guess it's in Homer somewhere. Somebody tell me, where do they, is the story about the uh, golden apples that's behind the Trojan War? That, 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 uh, was it Juno? Uh, that is, uh, Hera? Has to, who has to give the apple to the sort of prize winner? Hera? Paris. Paris. Paris has to give it to, and he has to choose between Aphrodite, Hera, and Athena, the three ladies. Who gets the, the Oscar or whatever he's got among these three stars? And the answer is, never ask a question like that. That's going to lead to disaster. That leads indirectly to the Trojan War. He should have refused to rank them. The way uh, Odysseus is smart, Odysseus refuses to rank Penelope and, uh, and uh, Calypso. But he does. Who's he now? Who has to make the choice? Paris. And Paris gives it to Aphrodite, right? And she gives him the power to run off with Helen, and there you go. Uh, you sh so there, there's something very interesting and attractive about Homer's implicit, and, and I take it that Greek Homeric cultures, implicit suspicion of ranking anything. Uh, and I, I, that's going to turn out to, to be important and interesting, I think, and uh, already. Yeah. Oh, the, 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 I see. Yes, let me find it. Because uh, it would be good to look at the Greek, right? It is so mind-boggling that one wonders whether, I'm, whether it really says what I think it seems to say. Well, let me find it. 117. Line 220, according to this. Cyclops rank no nearer gods than we. Who would have thought <laughs> that, they, that they were in the, in the... Who would have even tried to find out who was nearer God? They, neither one of them are like our gods, neither the Cyclops nor 
the, the uh, uh, creations. And I think Homer wants us to see that neither one of them are nearer gods. That, but that's, I think, amazing and weird. Okay, let, let us go on. I want to get up to why I like this kind of polytheism so much. Let's see. Um, I go into a whole thing about the Cyclopses here, but why do I have to do that? Let's see. So I just say they're barely human, they're savages, they're, they're brute natural forces, they're like volcanoes. I don't know why I'm telling you all this, particularly since I've told you once already, but, let me, but at least I can find where we are. On 148... There's the Cyclops, though they, they see the Lotus Eater, another life of ease at, one, at the top of 148. And they, but they go on. And then we, they find the Cyclopses. And uh, they neither plow nor sow. They're the hunter-gatherers types. They are not even into the agriculture business. Nor till the ground. Uh, and goes on, and wine grapes in clusters ripen in heaven's rain. That is, they they make wine, I think, but they do. I mean, they have, he has wine, but they don't cultivate wine. They just go out and pick the grapes when they when they want when they get ripe. Uh, and they don't. They have no muster and no meetings. That is, no politics and no culture. Uh, then they each dwell in his own mountain cave and so forth. So the that's. That's their thing, and they are, on, on 151, line 230, he's a towering brute, outward power, a wild man, ignorant of civility. And yet, and now, the, now uh, uh, he says, let's go see them, that's why I'm reading this. Because I wanted to tell you that I mean, he's always ready to take any risks to see some new form of life. And he, uh, they all say, no, let's go out, let's go to sea again as soon as possible. And he says, yet I refused, I wished to see the caveman, what he had to offer. And so, he, they all, half the, most of his crew ends up breakfast and lunch and dinner for the Cyclops. And, now where are we? But he wants to see all forms of life. Now, I'm ready to talk about why I like this multicultural uh, way of this polytheistic non-ranking. I think that it's very close to us. And first you have to see how close it is to us. And then you have to see how different it is from us in order to see why Homer's got something that's, that we... Black, and uh, as if he were somehow the stage after us instead of the stage way before us. Well, to begin with, he's close to us. He seems to think that you ought to be able to choose all these different forms of life. They're all interesting. They're all worth coming, lingering with for a while, and then you can always go on to another. But then you are free. It looks like. Remember, if in the Enlightenment, it looks like Homer's sort of after the Enlightenment because it looks like Odysseus is free 
self-determined as to whether he goes and sees these people. He freely chooses to see the Cyclops. He freely chooses to see uh, Calypso and Circe and so forth. Uh, so he, he's really pro-choice, like we all are, in the sense that uh, you, you have the choice, to, you are free to choose the kind of life that you want. That, that's liberal democracy. That's that we, are, we all got there, thanks to Kant and, and people after Kant. And uh, you, every, you don't rank them, and you don't get stuck with any of them. Uh, you can go from mood to mood. You can go from one kind of life to another, from one god to another. Uh, even Helen has two major moods. She has the runoff with Paris mood and then the come back and live happily with uh, her husband and kid and have nice banquets mood. And that sounds good. Get what it looks like the moral is, get the most, have the most diversity. It's beginning to sound familiar, doesn't it? Have the most diversity. All these different cultures or all these different moods, all these different lives available and freely choose among them and even switch among them. Uh, and don't try to rank them because then you'll get stuck. You'll be told that saints are good and sinners are bad, that monks and nuns are better than lovers and so forth. Dante's got them, I was reading sort of Dante ranking. Dante's got, even in paradise, the souls in paradise, you'll see, are ranked. And so that you can, they go, so that they go from uh, monks and nuns to lovers to theologians to church warriors, to rulers, to uh, contemplatives, to those who just stare at God. And, the, and nothing about the pros and cons in, in Dante, you'll see. He knows which life is best. But we don't believe that. Um, we think that there are all sorts of possible good lives and that uh, we shouldn't be ranking them. And so... What's, what, but what has he got that we haven't got? I just have time to talk about it. We, we, he, we like the idea that he wants to have respect for all ways of life. That's the diversity side of him, the multicultural side of him. Uh, and we'll see more about that when we get to Zeus, Athena, and Hermes. They are the very multicultural side of, of Homer. But there's something he's got. And I just want to leave you with that thought. There's something he's got that we don't have. And it comes from the fact that there are the gods. And the gods are the attuning ones. And the attuning ones are moods. Now, you need a, to contrast what I'm going to call our laid-back, ironic relativism from Homer's relativism. In our kind of relativism, all these different lives are equal. All these different cultures are equal. You have the right to do your thing, and I'll have the right to do my thing. We don't have to take any of them uh, as uh, better. We don't even have to take any of them as something that has any particular serious authority. It's like being at a kind of smorgasbord of various uh, cultural and personal possibilities. That's, then, everybody, then everybody should do their thing, and nobody should criticize anybody else doing their thing. And there's no reason to do this thing rather than that thing. You do, you know, whatever, as I said earlier. And then, uh, and there's something missing in that. What's missing in that is a kind of seriousness, a kind of the what gives a, a life serious meaning. 
it's too uh, sort of experimental and open. But you don't want to go to Dante where it's all settled and you know which life you should be leading and you just better do it because that's what God, how God ranks things. But so what's the middle ground? Well, in a culture in which moods are taken very seriously, there is something like being pulled into these various worlds. We saw that. Helen does, has that and uh, uh, Achilles has that. They're being pulled into these various worlds, and they are serious. The interesting thing is when you're in the mood, you can't have a sort of laid-back, relativistic, well-whatever mood about it. You can't, Helen can't laugh at her affair with Paris. Uh, Paris. Uh, Nietzsche says that every culture has something about which you're not allowed to laugh. That means something sacred. That means something that has authority, that your free will and choice can't mess with. And, what, what, and if you had a culture in which moods were as important as they are in the Homeric story, you could be culturally a cultural relative, relativist, but not a kind of laid-back, ironic, whatever relativist, because when you were in a mood, you wouldn't think that that mood was what everybody should be in. That's not, that's Homer never would want you to think that. But that mood has authority over you. You can't freely choose it, and you can't get rid of it. You, when you're drawn into it, you're in it. And it's, it is unquestionably uh, meaningful. And when you are, when it leaves you, like Helen gets tired of Paris, then it's just not meaningful anymore. But the whole point is what Homer has is these worlds, which are tied up with the tuning ones and the moods, and, in, and he has the, a kind of seriousness and authority that, the, that we don't have. The Enlightenment has sort of wiped out for us anything but our free, arbitrary choice, which we make and unmake by our own willpower. The idea that there is a power outside of us which grabs us, gives our life meaning, tells us what's important and not important, casts its, uh, uh, makes everything show up in its light, and as we're talking about, like, like Dave did, what opens up a certain bunch of possibilities as the important ones. That's what Homer's got that we've lost. That's what he's got that's better than total enlightenment, relativism, and total arbitrary choice. Okay, time is up. I hope this is recorded somewhere.